Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show... China's giant grain trader and how it's shaking up the old world order. China has realized that it can't grow everything it needs. So to remedy this, it has decided to resort to trade. And yet another controversy facing the market in credit default swaps. Because no one really expected Vodafone Zigo to go bust, no one was looking that closely. That seems to be the explanation. But even so, it is quite an embarrassing mistake to make. First, How to fix Venezuela, where wheelbarrows of cash are being exchanged for a loaf of bread and prices are doubling roughly every month. Venezuela is experiencing severe hyperinflation in what may be the final days of the ill-starred regime of President Nicolas Maduro. But given the right sort of regime change, hyperinflation can end quickly, offering a slither of hope. To talk about this, I'm joined on the phone by Ryan Avent, The Economist's free exchange columnist. Hello, Ryan. Hi, Simon. Firstly, maybe let's put this in a historical perspective. I mean, in the history of hyperinflations, which I see you take back to Rome and the Emperor Diocletian, but many would also think of uh, Weimar Germany, Shanghai before the revolution. I mean, how bad is Venezuela's? Well, it's very bad relative to sort of the lived experience that you and I have. But relative to kind of other hyperinflations, it hasn't yet achieved kind of record-breaking territory. The worst hyperinflation on record that we know of was uh, in Hungary just after the Second World War, where price inflation peaked at a rate of 42 quadrillion percent, which is just extraordinary. And so I think the IMF estimates that if things continue in Venezuela, it may, over the course of this year, reach an inflation rate of 10 million percent, which is quite bad, but not in the top 10. How has it gotten to this state? It's, it's gotten to this point in the way that these things usually do, which is that you have a sort of tenuous political regime, which is spending far more money than it has. And so Venezuela's budget deficit over the past uh, half decade or so has risen up to close to 30% of GDP, which is just a huge number. And and what you would normally expect to happen when countries get into this sort of territory, when prices start to rise, the currency starts to plummet, is you would think that the government would, would take steps to kind of prevent the crisis from unfolding. But when you have a regime that's in a tenuous position that has to mollify certain political interests who stand to be harmed by the reforms that it would take to stop that process, then the, the process can simply continue because there's no politically sustainable way to, to bring it to an end. And that's essentially what's happened here is Maduro is, for whatever reason, is unable to kind of take the steps he needs to take to limit spending, to raise taxes for fear of losing his job. So if you were finance minister, your first recommendation would be resign. But short of that, what can they do? 
The good news is there's a pretty tried and true playbook for ending these things, and it typically involves a few steps. One is often regime change in the leadership, uh, which Maduro may not be too pleased about, but that may be in the offing. But then more importantly, you have to have a major fiscal reform, which is able to, to bring the deficit way down. You have to have a credible shift, either within the Treasury or the central bank, such that people believe that the printing presses will no longer be used to fund government spending. And usually the way that that sort of promise is made credible is that you have some sort of anchor to the currency, like an exchange rate peg, like dollarization, something to give people sort of a guidepost where they can see that the reforms are being carried out and are credible. And then often when these things happen, you also have some sort of outside assistance, usually an IMF program. And I think were Venezuela to to get itself out of the situation, you would probably have a change in leadership and you would probably have a big IMF program come in to help help them establish these steps credibly. You, you were pointing out earlier, Ryan, how hard it is for the president to fix this without undertaking measures which might threaten his own position. But isn't the converse also true that unless he gets a rein on hyperinflation, his regime's days are, are numbered? Isn't he going to be forced to do something? Well, he is, absolutely. And I think, you know, the right way to understand hyperinflations is generally not that there's a, a politician who says, well, you know, this is going to be a good idea, that I, I prefer to use the printing presses to fund everything uh, and court, you know, this this horrible economic scourge. It's rather that given the set of costs and benefits that they face, hyperinflation is kind of the least bad option. But then, of course, once hyperinflation becomes bad enough, it no longer is the least bad option. And so then you have, you begin to develop the kind of political will to take the necessary steps. Of course, you then have a, a credibility problem, which is if you were the person who oversaw a country's descent into hyperinflation, it often is quite difficult for you to convince people that you're serious about making change. And so that's one reason why you so often have a, a change in political leadership accompanying the end of the hyperinflation. Ryan, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Next to the world of grain trading. For as long as anyone can remember, this has been as simple as ABCD, the initials of the four mammoth firms that have dominated the trade, ADM, Bunga, Cargill and Louis-Dreyfus. All were formed over a century ago, and they get their edge from old age and experience. But now a toddler from Asia is threatening to put a pitchfork in the works, Kofco International, or CIL, is the trading arm of China's largest food maker and just four years old wants to become a true global agribusiness. To discuss it, I'm joined by the economist Mathieu Favard. Hello, Mathieu. Hello, Simon. So, firstly, what did China see as wrong with the established order? Why did it find it necessary to form CIL? I think it felt probably that it did not have enough control over how trade was being done, how basically food was getting into the country. It must be said that China has realized that it can't grow everything it needs, especially staple crops, in its own country. So it still wants to grow wheat and rice. Uh, but soybean, for example, is a crop that it can't really grow sustainably in the country. So to remedy this, it has decided to resort to trade. So Chinese food imports have been multiplied by nearly 12 since 2000. So that gives you a measure of the needs. So its main job then is to ensure China's food security? It's not to become a hugely successful and profitable global trader. Well, that's why it's a bit, a bit ambiguous because Kofco International seems to have a double mandate. Uh, its main client is China. It's likely that it will remain its biggest client. 
And guaranteeing the, the supply that China needs to feed its population is clearly one of the most important roles. But its chairman, whom I interviewed last week, said that Kofco International aims to become a big global trader and that it is seeking profit. So it wants to compare itself to one of the big ABCDs and have the same sort of global ambit. Come back to the food security bit for a moment. Does this represent a change from what we thought was China's strategy of partly just buying up farmland overseas? Yes, definitely. Uh, For a while, China thought that it could remedy its food deficit by buying farmland overseas. So it went to emerging markets. Uh, It's invested a lot in Australia as well. Buying farmland is, is tricky. I guess farmland is a very emotional asset because it's probably the last, you know, one of the very concrete things that the country has, farmland. So that triggered quite an important backlash in a number of countries, including Australia, which decided to tighten foreign investment rules. And China also realized that by implementing export bans, its investments could be rendered useless if host countries decided that the country was no longer welcome. So it shifted to a different strategy and seems to be trade. And turning to the, the global trading aspect of this, why is China setting up on its own rather than buying one of the existing companies, which would be a strategy it's followed in, in some other businesses? So it actually did that. So when it created Kofco International, uh, it took the small subsidiary of Kofco Group, which is the, the largest state-owned food maker, and with that bought two medium-sized traders, uh, Nigeria and Noble Agri, that were very active in South America, where most of the, I guess, the growth in yield is going to come from. So it, it took all this time for Kofco International to digest this this acquisition. So going on to buy another big trader is going to be difficult. And these traders are not for sale, actually. So two of them are private. And the two that are listed, uh, one of them is probably to be for Kofco. It's about twice the size of Kofco. And the other one is American. And in the current times, it's difficult to imagine that Washington would uh, let that through. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, we are talking in a week when indictments have been issued against Huawei, when in general, Chinese business is under a kind of cloud of global suspicion. Does that cloud taint Kofco International as well? Not yet, because the company is is very much under the radar. But it's fair to assume that as it grows and, and becomes more publicly known, uh, this scrutiny could become a, a problem for Kofco International and it could face a backlash. It's the only state-owned trader that is that big. And it's fair to ask, you know, which of the two mandates the company has is going to, to prevail if, for example, uh, in one year the weather is bad and there is a shortage of crops. Is it going to seek profits and, and therefore um, do what the other traders do? Or is it going to try and secure the supply at all costs and pay over the odds? So what does it mean for the rest of the world, if you like? I mean, at first sight, one would have thought more competition amongst this tight market dominated by just four firms would be a good thing. Do, does the rest of the world stand to benefit? Absolutely. I think there's very good sides to Kofco International coming on the scene. One is that it's probably better to see China embrace trade than disrupting farmland deals. The second bit is what you just said. So uh, increasing competition in a market that uh, has traditionally been quite opaque, dominated by an oligopoly is also a good thing. And also, Kofco International could invest in new infrastructure, say in Brazil, in countries where it's really needed. So all that is very good. But the fact that it's a fairly opaque company and it's a state-owned business makes things a bit, I suppose, a bit less transparent. Added to that as well is the fact that soon enough, Kofco International will supply a large portion of what China needs in terms of food. 
So it will become less transparent to the outside world what China produces, what its inventories are, and all this information is necessary to form prices in global food markets. So perhaps less transparency, more volatility in food markets, which is harmful to a lot of people in the supply chain. Mathieu, thank you very much. You're very welcome. We mentioned in passing there the big Chinese telecoms firm Huawei. For a more in-depth look at what the allegations against the firm mean for US-China relations, have a listen to our new daily podcast, The Intelligence, this Wednesday. And finally, the story of an O. Nothing to do, I'm afraid, with the famous erotic novel, but the equally steamy world of the market in credit default swaps, where O stands for obligation. The market's seen its fair share of controversies, and the latest centres on a Dutch company, Vodafone Ziggo. Holders of its credit default swaps, a sort of insurance policy against its defaulting on its debts, belatedly noticed that the entity housing them had been wound up. Not a problem, you'd have thought, since the obligations could be transferred to another company. But it turned out not to be quite so straightforward. Alice Fullwood, The Economist business correspondent, is here to explain. Hello, Alice. Hello, Simon. So, as I understand it, it came down to capital O obligation or lowercase o obligation. How so? It did. So, usually under the credit default swap contracts, the sort of O's are capitalised to reflect the obligations of the derivative that have been written on the bonds of the sort of entity that's responsible for servicing those debts. But in this contract, one of the O's was lowercase, which sort of implied that it was the wider obligations of the company that were being referred to. And that sort of capitalisation of that O did lead a sort of panel of lawyers to decide that actually the CDS would be valid on the sort of bigger entity in the end. Let's backtrack a bit. I mean, what exactly was being insured here? What does a credit default swap do? Right. So credit default swaps are sort of a synthetic insurance product that's supposed to pay out in the event that a company defaults on its bonds. But bonds are very specific. So you write a bond for Vodafone Ziggo, say, and um, and that bond will sort of run for five years, pay coupons, etc. The CDS is supposed to insure against the risk that a company doesn't make any of those payments. So if it doesn't pay its coupons or it doesn't pay back the principal at the end, the CDS would compensate investors that held that bond for any losses that they'd incurred. Now, a couple of things are pretty surprising about this story to me. One is that nobody noticed this mistake. I mean, to you and me, that might seem quite a small mistake, but lawyers are paid big bucks for not making that kind of mistake. So that's one question. How could that happen? The second is, how is this arbitrated? Who are these people who decide what that means in the end? The fact that no one picked up on this error, the fact that the entity that the CDS was referring to had been wound down, that is quite rare. The problem of orphan CDS, as they're sort of called in the industry, is reasonably regular. But if you notify the sort of regulators within a certain time limit after the entity has been wound down, then usually the CDS can be transferred to sort of the main company and they will continue to to trade and to exist. In this case, no one noticed for several years. That might seem odd, but because the sort of uh, the main company behind the CDS was a sort of reliable blue chip company, no one is necessarily looking very closely at the specifics of these contracts because it's it's very unlikely that they will eventually pay out. But because no one really expected um, Vodafone Ziggo to go bust, no one was looking that closely. That seems to be the explanation. But even so, it is quite an embarrassing mistake to make. And on the second question, I mean, yeah, it's a huge market, trillions of dollars. 
Yeah, uh, $8 trillion are sort of traded in CDS. So you'd expect that there was a clear procedure, court of law, where this would be ruled on Captain Dad. And it turns out to be a sort of a few people getting together in a room and hashing it out together. Yeah, exactly. So this particular uh, case was settled by arbitration by lawyers, in effect. And a lot of those lawyers were actually um, banks lawyers. So some holders of the CDS, or those who had sort of sold it when they realised the error, have claimed that it's sort of unfair that it was decided in this way, because a lot of the lawyers involved in making the decision were on the side of the banks who had most often sort of written the CDS. As we mentioned, this is not the first controversy to strike this market. I mean, is it a sign or are there moves to get it to clean up its act, as it were, to get more formalised, to become more rigorous in pursuing these and to have contracts that could be enforced in the court of law rather than in the way you've just described? This sort of scandal does follow on the heels of several other scandals. Last year, there was a controversy when Blackstone, a real estate fund, got a US home builder to trigger its CDS, even though it wasn't anywhere close to default. And at the same time, they issued these very, very cheap bonds so that the CDS would pay out in significant size. This was very controversial because it divorced the value of the CDS and the CDS payout from the probability of default or the value of the bonds entirely. And I guess all of this gets to the bigger problem with CDS in general, which is that bonds are very specific financial products. Um, They have specific entities that write them, specific tenors. And if they do move from one entity to another, that doesn't really matter because the bond still exists. Whereas CDS are synthetic insurance contracts that are supposed to act like bonds. But the reason they were written in the first place is because if you think an entity is going to default, it can be very difficult to to get the bonds to, sh- to go short because bonds are very illiquid. And CDS was supposed to solve that liquidity problem by making these slightly more generalised, slightly more generic versions of bonds. But the problem you're seeing now is that there are all of these ways in which they can therefore become divorced from the markets that they're supposed to reflect. And if you have more situations like the situation with Blackstone and that US home builder or people not noticing orphan CDSs on big blue chip companies, then it does undermine the sort of credibility of the market and the idea that CDS can actually reflect what they're supposed to reflect. Alice, thank you very much. Thanks, Simon. So that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, why not take out a subscription? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.